Last weekend, Bill and Connie Neville were in the news. Now you're about to meet the couple that has an arena named after them at Auburn University. You speak, we listen. Conversations connecting people. This is The Chuck Williams Show. Welcome back, guys, to this edition of The Chuck Williams Show. We're going to dive right into this. Our guests are Bill and Connie Neville. Guys, thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you, you Chuck. Thanks for having us. Well, it's it's an honor. And in full disclosure, I've known both of y'all a long, long time. Bill and Bill and I both graduated from Lakeside School in Eufaula. Um, Bill was a class of 1980. I was 79. And uh, Bill was the scorekeeper on the basketball team, and I was the manager. And, and Connie, you graduated from Eufaula High, right? I did. I graduated uh, two years after you guys. Uh, that's a long time. It's been a long road. I mean, Bill, your name kind of, the, the Neville name just burst back into the into my world uh, last month when Auburn sent out the news release that it was going to be Neville Arena. I'd seen y'all at games. I'd seen y'all around the Auburn campus and stuff. But just real quickly, you know, what did it feel like? Friday, when you saw the Neville name go up on that arena? For me, it was it was very emotional. Uh, I had a lump in my throat and a tear in my eye, and I just, um, it, I couldn't believe that it was, uh, it was there, it was real. We've been talking about this for years, and to see it happen was just, it was very special and emotional, and our whole family just kind of gasped in this, um, you know, big van, everybody was riding in and, and Bill and I were riding in a different vehicle, but everyone just, um, was just very overwhelmed to see it. It was wonderful. Very special. I, I would say that, um, you know, there's a lot of behind the scenes work that goes on into this type of event, uh, in terms of the gift and the paperwork and the planning and so forth. And so for me, I had seen the letters in print on paper and I even seen a picture of the rendering. But I think when I walked up and right there below Neville Arena, it said home of the Auburn Tigers. That's when it got me. And that's when I, I really got choked up. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting because I got a little choked up seeing it. True story. Coach Barr, Wendell Barr, who was our high school coach at Lakeside, um, was sitting there and um, I met him early and interviewed Coach Barr before the ceremony. And he, we were standing there under the Neville Arena sign. And some guy walks up to me and uh, says, Hey, you're Chuck Williams. And I said, Yeah. And he said, Watch you every day. Can I get a selfie with you? And when the guy walked away, I looked at Coach Barr and I said, Your head's blowing up right now. And then I said, I said, your bookkeeper's name's on the arena and your manager's famous and you're trying to figure out how it all happened. But you, uh, <laughs> you, you, you were never an athlete, but you were always around athletics, right, Bill? That's right. I was. I really enjoyed being a part of it. As I, as I mentioned on Friday, um, watching Coach Barr coach up those teams and I think the way he did it, the, 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 the values that he brought to those basketball teams, which were to grab the fast break and get down the court faster than the other guys. And so to do that, we're going to work really hard for hours and hours, and we're going to 
practice these repetitions over and over again. It was an exciting brand, and I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to be part of the team. I knew that probably I didn't have the skills to be a participant on the floor, Neither that I. I wanted to be a part of it. And, and the same thing with football. You know, I did uh, some work for the football team as well uh, when we were in high school, uh, including doing the radio uh, play-by-play as a senior. So I'd say doing radio play-by-play for football all by yourself is a lot harder than it is for basketball because there's a lot of downtime in football uh, where you have to fill between the plays. There's only so many times you can repeat the down and distance <laughs> before, before and, it gets boring. And you weren't working out of, you weren't working out of the best press boxes in the country in the Alabama of uh, Alabama private school association either, were you? <laughs> no, it was a, it was an adequate press box, but you had to go up that wood ladder and uh, crawl through the hole <laughs> to, uh, to get in there. I remember it well. Uh, you, you know, it was interesting. I was talking to Coach Barr. You are talking about the teams, and I think you said your appreciation for basketball form, watching his teams. And I think I, I had appreciate. I have an appreciation for basketball because I think we got to see it play right. We got to see full court pressure. We got to see a coach that stressed defense. He stressed, you know, working the ball on offense and stuff. And you know, I, I. I watch basketball today through the lens of watching Coach Barr's teams. Do you? I do. Um, Absolutely. I mean, uh, if I'm there at the sideline of a basketball game and there's a loose ball, I'm hollering, go, 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 because that's just how I was programmed. You grab the loose ball and you get down there and try to get an advantage on the brick. You know, it's funny because I've seen y'all courtside, I think in Gainesville, y'all were right behind the Auburn bench, but I saw you, I see you courtside and Bill, you're a pretty reserved guy. You're a businessman. You're a very successful businessman. Connie, you yell at refs. You yell hard <laughs> at refs. <laughs> Where does this, I mean, you, I keep waiting for you to get teed up one night, <laughs> but you will, you will let a ref know if you don't like the call, right? Hey, I was, I, I really calmed it down um, on Saturday, but we were wrapped up again. It was right in front of him. <laughs> but as I said, it takes a lot for me to pop off. But when I do, something's wrong. And, uh, you know, and it'll, it'll pop right out. But I'm trying to um, be very uh, much calmer on the sideline. Take it, taking a page out of Brandy Pearl's book <laughs> or Tanya Pruitt. I talked to them after the game and I said, you two are so calm during all this while your husbands are coaching. And they said they've just learned to do it. You know, they, they couldn't get as worked up as we do every game or they would be stressed out all the time. So <laughs> they've learned to be very calm. And I'm, I'm going to try to practice. That. I think, I think Connie is very protective of the boys and that's really I, what it is. It's not so much getting, getting on the referee, it's when she feels like some one of the kids has been wronged, <laughs> like they're grabbing him and not letting him get to the basket. She thinks the foul should be called. She sort of yeah. lets him know. You know, and, that's uh, interesting. I try to provide input as well. Yeah, but you're a little, you're not as animated. Connie's pretty animated. I mean, you can catch her on TV, or if you're sitting up in the cheap seats where I've sat a couple of times, you can standing room only at Neville Arena. Um, uh, you you can you can see that. That's one of the things I want to get at. Auburn has always prided itself being as being a family. Y'all 
are not Auburn graduates, neither one of you, but you have family connections to Auburn. But how has the Auburn family embraced y'all? And can can you talk about what the Auburn family means? And we start with you, Connie, if you want to, and then go to Bill. Sure. You know, we've been, boy, we've been going back for, well, we've been married 37 years. We would go to Auburn games, basketball and football, before, you know, we were married. But so for over 40 years, we've been heading back down the road, you know, to Auburn. And every time we get there, we're embraced by friends that we've known a long time. We've met brand new friends through basketball. And I was telling our children the other night, you're never too old to make these deep friendships you never thought were going to come to your life you know, at a later age, you, you might think you have all the friends and family in the world, but you really don't. And when you have things in common that you love, that you're all on the same page rooting for it and, and loving it and living it, it's just the best. And we look forward to seeing these people when we get back to Auburn. It's really about, it really is about the people. And I believe it was, um, Alan or Tim the other day who said it's not the bricks and mortar it's the home inside the buildings it's not the name on the building it's the people inside it's these players these student athletes that we just love to see them you know get to to do their thing on the courts and the fields they get an opportunity at Auburn to to shine and to move on in their lives after it's all over and we just get to cheer for them and be there to support them. And we just love it. It's a common bond. It's a common love that we all share. I would echo what Connie says and just say that the Auburn family has always embraced us. They don't look to the degree, the fact that we didn't attend classes. They just look that, that we're, that they've embraced us as part of the family. We all share a common passion and it's always been that way. As Connie said, we, we've been a part of the Auburn family from before it was time to decide where to go to college. And we've remained a part of the Auburn family our entire lives. And that's because we've been welcomed in and we've been treated extraordinarily well by the Auburn family our entire lives. You, you obviously, from Dr. Goose, the president, down to uh, Alan Green, the athletic director, all the way down through that – university and athletic staff you have built these relationships one of the things that struck me friday was your relationship with coach pearl you and bruce Mm -hmm. seem very close bill and how did that happen and is that an accurate assessment it is we're close to the pearl family uh i would say just like 81 he has obviously a lot of friends around auburn and knows so many people um we probably Got to know them a lot better after the Final Four run in 2019 when that game didn't turn out the way we had hoped. Um, Connie and I were on our way to a trade show in Las Vegas. We were actually a little late because we were skipping it in in lieu of going to the Final Four games. And um, I saw Stephen, Coach Pearl's son, Stephen Pearl, and his fiance, uh, girlfriend at the time, fiance now, Brittany, we were at the hotel and I said, um, 
look, guys, I know this is a rough. We're going to go to Las Vegas tomorrow. You want to come with us? And he said, that's a great idea. So we spent a few days with Stephen and Brittany in Las Vegas and got to know him and both of them. And it was clear to me what an incredible young man Stephen is and what an incredible father he had. And um, to raise this son, not just to be a basketball coach, but to raise such a fine son. And so, you know, as time went on, uh, we would sometimes sit together at the football games and get to know each other and get to know more of their family. So it's just been something that's grown over the years. What's something, I mean, obviously everybody sees Bruce Pearl's ability to recruit, his passion for the game, his ability to be not only a showman, but a he's – kind of the guy that can fill the arena and make people that may not be interested, interested in something. What trait does Bruce Pearl have that you admire most, Bill and Connie? I would like to hear both of y'all. What's the trait in Coach Pearl that y'all admire the most? We're going to say the same thing, I'm sure, but it's without a doubt passion. Mm -hmm. Without Mm -hmm. a doubt the passion he brings to the game. And as I said, I've said this before, um, I realize now there is no ceiling for passion. What, what he does, what he brings, he continues to up the game. If you look uh, at the passion in, in that arena now and, and compared to any time in the past, he's just got it there. He's got everybody bought in. And so to me, that is the single uh, most powerful trade he has. But maybe not the same thing, Connie. What would you say? I was going to say that. Um, his, his enthusiasm, too. And Bill once asked Stephen at a dinner, he said, well, What's the secret to getting these great players? Um, you know, we've had some real stars and coming on. And Stephen said, you know, Bill, if we just get them in the room with BP, he calls his dad BP. If we can get him in the room with, with BP, they they will stay. They catch his enthusiasm and his passion, and, and we got them. We just have to get them on campus. So I would agree with Bill. It's, it's Bruce's just exuberance for the game and his players. I want to get into a lot of other stuff, but I'm going to ask one more basketball question because y'all obviously know this team very well as well. Um, I won't ask you who your favorite player is, but of all (laughs) these kids you've gotten to know, is there a kid or a story that stands out that you just say, hey, you know, I love this kid. I love his story. I love what he does. You want to go first, Bill? I'm going to let you go. <laughs> well, 37 we years of marriage, huh? <laughs> <laughs> we followed uh, the team down to the Bahamas at Thanksgiving. And on Thanksgiving Day, we were all at the Atlantis for the, the battle for Atlantis um, games. And um, Zepp Jasper ran up to us. And Bill was wearing this belt buckle, you know, with a tiger head on it that I had bought him. And he said, well, you know, he, he loved Bill's look. And then I walked up and had some crazy purse on or something. And he said, well, let's get a selfie. And then he was just so warm and so friendly. Um, but we, we all got in this little picture together on Thanksgiving day. And I just said, well, you know, what a nice, what a nice kid. And then we got back to Auburn going through the regular season and after every game, there he was, Zep, holding somebody's little child, bending down, you know, holding a little baby's hand. 
I just, I got so touched by his um, genuine enthusiasm to meet people after the games and to talk to us. And then after so many games, we just, we looked for him and he's just been a delightful, sweet young man, but they all are. I mean, it's a bunch of good boys on that team and they've, they've welcomed us as, you know, their little, their little friends. <laughs> We're very appreciative. I mean, they're all polite and considerate. They take time to do pictures uh, after games when I know they're ready to go do other things uh, with their friends and families. They yes. sign balls over and over again. Yes. And they are just kids of great character. It's clear that, that Bruce has gone and, and gotten players that fit his system. And, and that means a being of high character and, and they all are. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say I know them all very well, but I probably talked to most of them at one point or another and to a man, they're all just outstanding. I agree with Bill. They're also generous with their time and their, um, you know, their kindness to, to fans who love them. And um, we have a couple of friends who come and, their little boys just, I think they've met them all too. And I think got every signature on that basketball they could get. That, that is, <laughs> those that, play, those that, players are wonderful. That's cool. Last basketball question, Bill, who's the most important player for them to make a run deep into March? Well, I mean, you, you have to say that the obvious top, or the, one of the top picks in next year's draft has been a player that has made a massive contribution all season long. And so Jabari, if he just keeps playing the way he's been playing, we have a chance to, to make a deep tournament run. And, you know, everybody else is um, really important. I don't think there's any one of our starters is not important or, or the, the guys that come off the bench, they all make such significant contributions. Um, and, and like I said, they're all great kids. I mean, you take a kid like Dylan Caldwell who comes in, uh, makes a contribution. Sometimes he gets a couple fouls, but he'll make a thunderous dunk and he gets some rest time to some of those other guys. And that's super important when we're going to this tournament run. We're playing games day after day. You're going to have so, to get two and three minutes from guys that are 9, 10, 11, 12 on that bench. I think you're right. And, and you know, we have, we've had some injuries through the year. You know, we were without Zep for a few games. We've been out um, – Without Leo, without Leor, since uh, early in the season, he hasn't been able to get the kind of minutes he had. He would come in um, pretty early off the bench and you know make some threes and make some big plays. And he had an injury and he hasn't really been back full speed. I saw him back in last couple of games. I was excited about that. So you know, if we can be full strength, then you know I feel like it, it could be an exciting postseason. Yeah. How about a little Walker Kessler I, under that uh, under that? <laughs> Yeah, you you and I you and I are thinking alike, Connie. I think Kessler is, is, is I think I think he disrupts a lot of things. Let's get off basketball now. I could talk basketball all day with the two of you. But I want to talk a little bit. Bill, when when you left Ufala, you went to Rice and then you went to Columbia and I think Connie, you went to NYU in Columbia, right? So That's um so y'all were in New York at the same time then, right? Yes. Yes, we, we, were, we were married. We married very young. <laughs> <laughs> Did y'all, how old were y'all when you got married? Ooh, barely 21. 21. Wow. 
and obviously it obviously has aged well. Um, Bill, you were the first guy that I ever remember in Ufala with a computer. You, I think you had a home computer or something that you produced those stats on or something, but you were the first person I ever remember with a computer. This is going to lead to sort of where you made your money and how you were able to do what you did for Auburn University. But when did you start messing around with computers? It was in high school. I think my dad kind of encouraged it. Um, he got me a, a fancy uh, TI calculator at one point. Did you kind of hit the limit on that? And then home computers came about. And uh, where we lived in Eufaula, there wasn't an Apple dealer really anywhere nearby, but there was the Radio Shack that had the TRS-80. And so usually back in those days, you either got an Apple or a Radio Shack TRS-80. And I ended up with the uh, TRS-80. And it would it, I think it came in three parts that snapped together with like a ribbon cable that you could see uh, while you were using it. But and, there the, was a, and the couplers? It had the couplers? Yeah, you would see, yeah, you would see all that while you're using that, it. That was the but, first sports rider machine. Yeah. So the, the the computer came with a built-in language called BASIC, which was really easy to pick up. And so I learned how to program in BASIC, just sort of self-taught, just read, read the book and uh, follow the examples. And I started programming. And then when I got to Rice, uh, which is in Houston, and was a, a booming city at the time with a big kind of oil and gas industry, um, I, I was there. I hadn't been at Rice more than two, three weeks, and I found out there was a Houston area computer club that met uh, very close to Rice. And so I went there one night, and there were, I don't know, 50, 60 people in there, and they all had these Radio Shack computers. And so we were able to trade stories. And this was and like what, 80, 82, 82, 83? Yeah, about that, a little, little before that. I think I went out there in fall of 80. So this is probably when that, that started happening. Okay. And uh, so you would network through there too. And so I started picking up consulting work, uh, writing programs for uh, some of the businesses that had the computers. And they would come to these computer clubs looking for programmers. And so I started writing software for um, you know, a company that made fin tubed heat exchangers uh, in the Northwest side of Houston. And it was uh, you know, sort of interesting work to do. It was kind of interesting application to write and, I would develop software for them and make extra money or make money to pay for tuition, room, board. So that was a way that I kind of kept engaged with uh, computers and programming while also taking classes. Because when you, when you go to a computer science degree, it's not so much about programming. It's about a lot of theory behind uh, how computers were made. You start with a Turing machine and you, you learn a lot of algorithms and you learn a lot of theories and you learn about efficiency and how to write efficient programs based upon a lot of theories. But you don't necessarily write a lot of code in these classes, except maybe toward the end of the class each semester. And so I would backfill that by writing a lot of code at these jobs that I had. And you know, I think that was a great thing for me to do because it, it when I finished college, I already had uh, a lot of programming experience a lot of interesting programming experience solving these problems for these heat exchangers. So um, I think that put me in a pretty good position 
to go and start out with a professional career, which, which wasn't initially programming. It was more man. It was management consulting on Wall Street, but, but that was again good a good uh, experience to have. So you end up going back though, and Connie, I'm coming back to you. I'm not trying to leave you out here at all, but oh, yeah. you <laughs> you end up. The way it's been described to me, and if I ask this wrong, you ended up writing programming that allowed for the crawl that you see that you saw in the eighties on television in television, like on news and sports programming. Is that accurate? What help me understand that? Okay. I know I oversimplified so, it. Yeah. A lot time. of people say that, and it's interesting how that comes about because I guess it's sort of a hard problem space to explain. And that's one part people kind of grab onto. But the program that you're talking about uh, is a newsroom computer system called the NPS. And so know it well. the way I got yeah, the way I got into that is that uh, Lee Perryman, who gave me uh, that uh, job doing basketball play by play and you follow him as the station manager, he had moved on to a career with the Associated Press. And he had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, and so he had gotten the Associated Press into doing not just content, but doing some um, computer systems and automation systems. And so he got in touch with me and said, do you, "You know, do you think you could help us out with, um, with with some of these systems?" And I said, "Sure, I'd be happy to to do that." And so we started working together on that, and that's where EMPS came about. There was an opportunity to do a, a newsroom computer system for television automation. And so it's really uh, um, a program that handles what I call the five stages of the journalistic workflow, which is starting with the discovery of what you want to do, whether it's reading, mostly reading the wires back in that day, reading the wires. Nowadays, you probably read more on Twitter. Back then, there was no Twitter, and you would read the AP or the other news feeds that came in on you know, on, on the EMPS. And then the next stage would be the planning of what it was you were going to cover. Now that you had discovered things, you would have a planner and that would be almost like a calendaring system or a list of, of events that you want to cover the, the so-called news gathering grid that you might be familiar with. I am very, and then it was actually the author, the writing of the script. And then finally the, the airing, the, the rundown that you might be familiar with the, the airing, and then pushing out to the web would be another stage. Those are the five stages that I like to talk about. And some of them are more important than others to different stations. But after we had ENPS, we realized that there were hundreds of different vendors of broadcast equipment that we needed to interface with. So Sony was big in the day. You probably worked with some other brands. And so we said so we can't possibly write interfaces with all these systems. So we came up with something called the MOS protocol or media object server was what we referred to as some of that equipment in the, in the EMPS terminology. So it came up with the MOS protocol, which was a universal language that we would all talk through to be able to speak from EMPS to the machines in the station. And so it was um, really just XML markup is all it was. We had to come up with a set of commands to cover all the cases. And so, one of the machines we talk to is the teleprompter. Another machine we talk to is the crawl. And so when I give you this long explanation, people will go and say, what did Bill say? They said, I think he talked about the ticker. 
And so that's what they come away with. But at the end of the day, it's really a complex set of interfaces that happen. And when you click on EMPS and you say, I want to go on air, a lot of commands go out to a lot of machines. And then as you resequence your rundown while the show is live, all those machines have to be reprogrammed dynamically. And so that's kind of where it, it came out. And that's why I say people kind of walk away and just, just talk about the ticker or the crawl. But it's a much more complex space than that. And I would have been one of those that walked away, except three years ago I made the switch from newspapers to TV. And I now know the absolute importance of EMPS. I'm sitting here with Dylan Hansen. Dylan's our director. Dylan also directs on the TV side as as well. And, you know, when you were describing the EMPS stuff, I mean, he's the guy that's sitting in the control room dealing with everything on that, on the the rundown that we use to put the show out. We attach the video to it. I would have never understood it had I not worked over here. And first of all, how does a guy from Ufala, Alabama, figure all that out where there wasn't a TV station within 50 miles? I mean, how did, how, did, how does that happen? I mean, kind of, you've watched it. How does this guy do that? Yeah, I've watched him for years and, all the years of the management consulting sort of stepping stone to a bigger question that was asked of Bill. Um, our daughter was very young then, um, but Bill needed to come up with a plan and some software to run some of the biggest newsrooms um, in the world. And is it okay to say this, Bill? But the, uh, the software ran BBC newsrooms for 25 years. So he really got into his groove of television newsroom software and just got better and better at it. And they have such, you know, they had such an elite, a very elite and always changing high tech um, business that kept this news running and it never went down in 25 years, even on huge news days like um, Mother Teresa's death or Princess Diana's death, or it just, it never went down. It was a solid, solid product. And they've just been excellent at it. And I'm just so proud of him. But it, um, he's, he's modest about it, but the Moss Protocol has won an Emmy because it, you know, it was so groundbreaking. So I'm, I'm very proud of him. They, they've done an amazing job in the news world. I was just fortunate to be able, I had such a diverse background and so, so much strong support through my life and had a great group of people that I worked with at the Associated Press during the formation and um, to be able to help explain a lot of the processes. I was fortunate to be able to understand business processes and be able to write code so and be able to communicate about it so that was a sweet spot to be in to be able to move quickly to to automate kind of a complex industry and when you when, when you deal with these large organizations as connie said like bbc which is you know it, it's, it's been you know as public knowledge that we were there uh in that at that customer but um, you deal with, with how to scale software to such a large group. And that was another you know, big challenge. And, and as Connie said, we're fortunate because you have to come up with a solution 
where you can upgrade it in place because you don't get to tell everybody, go home Friday at five o'clock. We're going to upgrade your systems. And when you log in on Monday, there'll be a new version. You don't get to do that because it's a 24 hour operation. So there's some interesting challenges in the space that have to be solved. Are you still involved in the company, Bill? Yes, I'm still involved with the NPS. Uh, still uh, uh, upgrading and enhancing it. And of course, we have a another uh, pro- or the AP, I should say, has another product that they brought to market that I'm involved in called AP Playbook, which is an editorial planning solution. And um, that's been more in recent years. And so, you know, we hope to bring new products to the market and continue to evolve in this space. What has that business success, and obviously your name is on Auburn Arena now, what has that business success afforded y'all the opportunity to do that may not have been there otherwise? Well, we were able to um, invest in another company in the U.S. Virgin Islands called Broadband BI. That was a, a real interesting uh, venture to be a part of for a number of years. And so the, that was um, a company that uh, was founded by a friend of mine who, who noticed that the, the legacy telephone company um, or the in, say incumbent telephone company um, had primarily DSL delivery for Internet. And so. And that was in the for, Virgin Islands, right? Yes. Yes. And so. You know, most of us, so we raised our children uh, on St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And, and so most of us, it was a, it's a harsh, saltier environment, and that's a copper technology to deliver. And so, and it doesn't have great range from the central office. And so the internet service wasn't great. There was dial up also, but that was slow. And so there was an opportunity to present another solution. And the solution was basically super Wi Fi. You would do a microwave antenna on the home or office with a point to point shot to a, another microwave antenna or a central tower that would then backhaul to the Northwest corner of St. Croix, which is um, surprisingly one of the largest concentrations of bandwidth in the Western hemisphere. A lot of the cables come back on U S soil before they then go off to other parts of the world. So we had this massive amount of bandwidth here on St. Croix and we tapped into it. And so we built this company and one reason we got involved in it is because I had a number of employees. They were all very technology-focused, and they were kind of frustrated by not having better Internet speeds. One that's you know, sort of stateside equivalent. Streaming was coming into fashion, and people wanted to be able to stream, wanted to be able to do video conferences like this. And so we got involved in that company to really raise the bar for, for Internet. And that ended up being, you know, uh, a, a lot of fun and a lot and a, and a big challenge because as you probably know in the fall of 2017 we got walloped by not one but two category five hurricanes um irma really devastated st john and st thomas which are the islands just the north of here and maria really hit st croix but also maria hit st croix and also dumped a lot of rain onto St. Thomas and St. John at a time they didn't need to be getting a lot of a lot more rain. So it was a double hit. And so pretty much all of the Virgin Islands were knocked out for power and for telecommunications. And so that was probably, you know, uh, that was on par with getting ENPS written in the first place and having to put it, you know, kind of reach deep for that effort to, to get it across the line. 
getting that internet put back up was also extremely challenging in the aftermath of the hurricanes because you had you had families that had their own problems. You had your employees with their families with their own problems, but they were still somehow find the way to get to work and get the internet restored. But it became very personal at the time too, because Connie would get a text going, Hey Connie, can you help me get my internet turned back on at my house? Uh-huh. You know, and, and, so and your you know, customers, get a lot of those. I get it. I get it. We were doing yeah. the best we could, of course, but we got that. And in the aftermath of all that, the the rules got changed um, in terms of federal funding into the territory, into Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands about how the money would be allocated. In the past, the incumbent carrier would get sort of a flat annual fee, which was a big number, to you know to provide service in what was called a high cost area. And the FCC changed the rules and said we're going to open it up for competition, and we're going to change the rules so that we reward. Uh, speed and resilience. So uh, you were in a position to compete. So all of a sudden we were in a position to compete. Uh, and so uh, last year, like the year before last, they, they opened up the application process and we applied to for a competitive bid to run underground fiber rather than above ground or, or wireless. Uh, you could, you could use any of those technologies, but but the better the technology, the better the score. And so underground fiber had the highest score. And so we based our proposition you know, on um, a substantial amount of underground fiber, but a, a fiber solution deliver a gigabit to every home and business in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And we were successful in that tender and, um, and were awarded, were declared the winner. And so that provided... Uh, some additional federal funding to our company. And then another company got very interested in us. We ended up selling the company to a bigger company that's now going to execute on that vision. Who bought, the, that co- was in, who bought the company? Uh, Liberty. Uh, okay. Liberty. Um, Is that the gas company? They're, no, they're, they're a large telecommunications okay. firm. Okay. They have a lot of uh, service here in the Caribbean on different islands. Connie, you're, I'm going to ask this question. I hope it's a fair question, but you're in a position to know Bill better than anyone. Why is he so successful? And why, f- since y'all's high school days, has this partnership that y'all have worked so well? <laughs> so, you know, I think the secret to Bill's success is that he just doesn't sleep until something is done right. He is um, a perfectionist in a good way when it comes to his passions for his work. Um, his ethic for work and life are the same too. He's he's passionate about all of us who love him and he takes great care of us, but he takes great care of his, um, of his businesses. And like I said, he doesn't sleep. I'm trying to get him to, uh, you know, selling broadband was, um, a, I almost did a cartwheel. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. <laughs> these, these hurricanes blowing around, a, you know, a broadband company, just, I just wanted him to take something off of his plate because he goes all in when he does it. And uh, one thing that has come up over and over about when we first started dating, um, you know, he was just like he was. And he was, he was then as he is now, he was very mature 
for, you know, a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, and he picked me up for our first date, and he handed me this box of cassette tapes that he had individually labeled and organized. They might have been alphabetized in this little briefcase (laughs) in his car, and I was so impressed. I mean, the car was spotless. He was spotless, and he hands me this tape box and says, pick something to listen to. And I believe I picked, you know, the Commodores, Lionel Richie. And <laughs> most of us did back then. Blown away. <laughs> what was your first car, Bill? Let's see. It was probably that um, Buick Electric 225. Uh, that was, um, I did, that was the family car that I got to drive. And then uh, I think when I went for college, my grandfather gave me his uh, Chevy Impala. And we drove that for a number of years. Um, even after we moved to the New York area, we, we drove that car, I think, until, uh, you know, until we finally had to retire it and get something else. We got a lot of use out of that. Um, I, would, I would add to one other, uh, to what Connie was saying, I would say that smile you see on her face, that's there almost all the time. She makes it very easy. And, you know, I, I always say that I think I'm the only one who can make her frown and I've done it a few times, but I certainly try not to. <laughs> Bill, you've got, if you had a work, uh, you know, it's amazing to kind of see this. It's been the 40 years since, you know, I've really talked to you, Bill, and it's just amazing to see what y'all have here and kind of where, where the journey has taken y'all. Bill, we're getting close to the end of this thing, but I want to ask you one thing. If you could get a room full of college kids today that have the same entrepreneurial spirit you do, that, that were looking for the next thing, I mean, for you it was EMPS, but if you could talk to a bunch of those kids, what's the one thing you would tell them right off the bat? First, I would tell them to focus on the same values that we talked about recently, which are be kind and compassionate to your colleagues, um, to be resilient and to, to work with passion. But if you're looking for, well, where's the next big thing going to be? Um, you know, it's still going to be in technology. As far as I can tell, I don't see any end to technology. Sometimes I'll tell kids, so how can I get you know, into something today? And I say, look at the, the mobile app market still seems to be super red hot and it's very easy to get into. You can write an app and deploy it onto a mobile device. And, you know, there are lots of them, so it's hard to break into that. But that's a, an avenue, I think, for success for a lot of kids. But, you know, in terms of technology, we're probably just scratching the surface. If you think about how much has come just in our lifetimes. I mean, really, com- computers existed when we were kids, Chuck, but they were really large things that filled entire rooms. If you think about how much has changed, what you hold in the palm of your hand now used to fill a room, and that has happened just in our lifetimes. And if you think about what's going to happen in the, in the coming years in terms of virtual reality, in terms of the, the, the way that kids are taught, just think about, like we were talking about sports earlier, just think about how, how kids are going to be educated on sports. You have your offensive line. You're going to be able to put them into virtual reality be able to not just um, draw something up or show them film or draw it on the board, but you're going to be able to take them into a virtual reality room and be able to work through things that happen to get out on the field and then be able to do your reps and have the computer analyze 
every aspect of what you do. So I think in terms of athletics, it's going to have a huge impact. Well, I mean, it already has. One of the things, and I'll go back to Coach Barr, your RO coach, one of the things he said was, he said, I had analytics when Bill was keeping my book before anybody had analytics. He said, I had, Bill was providing me with data and with percentages and with things that other coaches, certainly in the Alabama <laughs> Private School Association, weren't getting. But you saw the use of, of analytics, which is what sports is built on right now. Baseball is an analytical game. Football has become analytical. Basketball, you want certain guys taking certain shots in certain spots. I mean, you saw that 45 years ago in high school, didn't you? I did. Yes, and I actually dabbled with it um, 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago. Um, I went to Auburn's football fantasy camp. Uh, one year, which fantasy camp was a, a, a one to two day event where you just mostly socialize with the coaches, but they used to put us out on the field a little bit, but then there was an injury. So they, they stopped doing that. It was more just, <laughs> they'd show us film and things like that. But uh, Hugh and all the offensive line coach at Auburn at the time said, you know, I spend a lot of time Sunday morning grading my players. It's a lot of work. I have to go through, I write it all down and then uh, I can barely get it done. I have any way to, uh, really ever analyze the data. And so, so that was an interesting idea for a program. And so uh, Sean Cullen, who's a colleague uh, here on St. Croix, has worked with me for a, a lot of years. Um, and I said, let's let's try to do a, a program called Football Gradebook, where, where um, we could get into the analytics. And of course, we were heavily engaged in EMPS at the time. We didn't really have a lot of time to develop it out very much. So it, it kind of faded away when uh, some of the coaches we knew moved on to other places. Um, but we recently rehydrated it um, as a, a SaaS, as a cloud-driven service that runs off uh, the browser so it works on your mobile device and your iPad. And we've got a um, Vaughn Messina, who's a high school coach in the Mobile area, is the one who called us uh, two or three years ago and said, hey, you guys still doing this great book program? We said, no, but let's try to, let's try to get it going again. And so we're we maybe we're going to dabble back into sports analytics a little bit uh, professionally and we'll see if we can get any traction with it. It's um, it's, it's a bit hard because a lot of people out there doing it, but we're, we're going to try to maybe find a little niche for getting back into that space. I'm not betting against you. Are you Connie? <laughs> no, no. And I was going to add, you know, you were talking about or asking me about the secret to Bill's success and he's, he's always stri striving to find the most elegant clean solution to everything he does too. That's one reason his products have been successful because he, he creates the most elegant, efficient system he can, he can make. So I think they'll, they'll have a good product coming out for, um, <laughs> you know, analytics. Bill, and this is for both of y'all. I mean, you know, y'all have got to be right at 60 right now. If not y'all, I mean, um, you've built this over the course of a lifetime, 37 years of marriage, 40 years together. You've built this. What does the next 20 years look like for y'all? I think as Connie said, we've, we've simplified a little bit. So, you know, I'm proud of what we do with broadband and we've left it in good hands. It's, it's, it's good for our customers. It's good for our employees. It's good for the Virgin Islands. It's going to be a great solution. And there's a, and we have a well-capitalized company that's coming in to execute on that. 
So that has given me full focus back on ENPS and the related products. And it's something I really enjoy. So I wouldn't say I'm going to step away from that at all. But, um, you know, I think that I'll be looking to, you know, bring in more people into the company that, that can, you know, share the load and, um, and the next generation of products for television news automation are going to depend far less on the PC that you run now in the control room, uh, and more on mobile devices, um, such as you carry in your pocket and, and browser-based technologies. And so there's a lot of innovation left to do, and I'm very excited about that. So I intend to remain professionally engaged on that. I hope to have enough time to do more sporting events. And That's we've always done a lot of <laughs> we wanna make We want to make all the games. <laughs> it's a road trip for y'all because y'all are in St. Croix, so y'all have to y'all have to fly up and and to hit the game. Yeah. So what's it, about two hour flight to Auburn? No, it's just further that than that. It's, uh, it's almost as far from Auburn to St. Croix as it is from Auburn to the California state line. You know, if you pull out and look at look at the map, it's about fourteen hundred miles. So it takes a bit of time. Usually, if you take American Airlines, you uh, change in Miami and then go to Atlanta or wherever, and um, we can do. No, for sometimes the calendar works out and we can do a two for one. So we can do two football games in a row and stay in Alabama all week and visit, you know, friends and family, or we can do two basketball games. Sometimes they'll span over, you know, you have a game on Saturday and a game on Wednesday. So we've learned how to make efficient use of our travel time. Anything you would like to add, Connie? Uh, Just, um, yeah, I'm I'm just ready for some, uh, more basketball this weekend. We can't wait. We'll, we'll get, you know, we'll get to Tampa and see what happens, but it's, uh, it's just been so fun talking to you, Chuck. This has been a blast. I, I end the park podcast with, uh, what I call turn the tables and I've been asking you questions and the, the, um, and then I will give you an opportunity to ask questions. I think Brad Raffensperger and some others have nailed me with questions in some of this. So uh, hopefully this will be a friendlier venue. But if y'all get anything, I mean, is there a question y'all would like to ask me? Sure. So you talked about the tournament run, and uh, you're in sports all the time, so you have a lot of insight over the years. Uh, who do you think's the toughest team in the SEC that we're going to face in the tournament? And then where do you think we might land uh, in terms of seeding for the NCAA? Auburn, Kentucky, whoever goes the farthest in the tournament will be the one seed. The other will be a two. That's my prediction. Um, As far as that goes, I think you could see an Auburn-Kentucky final. A lot of people seem to think Arkansas can beat Auburn if they get each other in the semi. I'm kind of like you. I'm I'm not sure of that. I think – when you get into the second and third games or fourth games for some of the teams Auburn may be playing, depth matters. Auburn has tremendous depth. And I think the toughest team from the tournament is probably, I think I heard Coach Pearl say it after the uh, game the other day, the toughest game may be the first game because mm. – you know, and whoever that is and sort of what happens there because he said you're going to see a team that's either in the NCAA tournament already or is one win away from the NCAA tournament. 
So you're going to see a team that isn't, you know, probably going to be a top 32 team in the country. So they're going to have to beat three teams in the SEC tournament that are top 32, top 16, top five in all likelihood. Does that make sense? Yes. yes, it does. What do you think is the biggest win in Auburn basketball history? If I had to go that, I would think beating Alabama, I don't know the year, the year they made that surprising worst to first run in the tournament. They beat Alabama and Birmingham. Um, that would have been, when was that? That was sometime in the late 80s, early 90s, Bill. Do you remember that? They 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 made a uh, yeah. it was one of Sonny's teams. They made a run yeah. all the way through, and and won the tournament basically on fumes that that last day. <laughs> and I think they had to beat Alabama to do it. If I remember, that that may have been the biggest. I mean, you know, you probably had mixed emotions on the uh, on the uh, the final four loss to Virginia because your sister your sister Margaret's a Virginia grad, right? And my dad went to Virginia Law School, so Virginia has always been important to us. But make no mistake, I was cheering for Auburn. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't doubt. I don't doubt that. Anything you want to ask, Connie? I, I was just going to ask maybe um, your favorite interview that you've had over these years. Uh, probably uh, Colin Martin. Colin Martin. Colin Martin. I, th- I got to interview Secretary Martin when they opened. I mean, Colin Powell. I'm sorry. Colin Martin's a guy over here. Colin Powell. I got to interview uh, Secretary Powell when they opened the National Infantry Museum here. And wow. I got to spend a few minutes interviewing him. The shortest interview I ever had was with uh, a NASCAR crew chief. His name was Ernie Elliott. He was Bill Elliott's brother and crew chief. And, oh, wow. and I and, and Bill and Ernie were standing there, and I walked up to Bill Elliott, and Ernie was looking, and Ernie walked away, and I walked up to Bill, and I said, "Hey, Bill, you got a couple seconds? I can talk to you." This was on pit road at Talladega. Bill said, "Sure." He counted to two and walked off. So, so that, that so I've had some interesting interviews over over the years, uh, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it really is well. This has been a really good. I tell you what, I'm gonna bring Dylan in for one thing. Dylan, Dylan is a, oh, no. <laughs> a true practitioner of the uh, EP, ENPS. Okay. Okay. If you got one question, here's your chance. This is the guy that did it. Okay, so I I didn't know that you were still um so active with the NPS. So why is it so hard to get old rundowns out of the trash can when you accidentally delete them? <laughs> 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 that is an end user there, Bill. Everything else okay. is perfect. <laughs> okay, well, you know, that's, there's always a suggestion box. There's room for improvement. So uh, send that on to your support uh, team at the Associated Press, and they'll, they'll get it in the backlog of that fix. There's, a, there's actually a lot that has to go on behind the scenes uh, with rundown processing, as you might imagine. Yeah, so anything can... involving resequencing, uh, creating, or deleting a rundown is uh, – that's one of the biggest t- tasks you can ask ENPS to do in terms of, you know, compute expense. Yeah, I was going to say, when you were explaining mossing earlier, I just, like, know the term. They say, like, moss the, the rundown or whatever. I didn't know there was so much to it, but now it makes so much sense why it's so important. Well, you have... You have yeah, moss, when you moss activate it, it, it causes things to happen. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it does. Well, our guests have been Bill and Connie Neville. They, uh, they are a 
37, 40-year love story. Uh, a lot of people got to know a lot about him last week when Neville Arena was christened on Auburn University's campus. Bill and Connie, thank you all so much for being here. This has been a really enjoyable hour. Oh, thank you very so much. Enjoyed much. it. It was fun talking to you. It's just great to see you again. Good to see y'all. I'm sure I'll see you at some of the basketball games over the next few years. But thank y'all for all you do. And thanks for sharing your story. Your story is an amazing story. And I think a lot of people will see the Neville name. I hope they'll get to watch and listen to this and understand a little bit more about what that Neville name means. Now we're at the point where I have to drive us out of here and I always drive us into a cliff. Um, but on this one, we'll say you can see the Chuck Williams show on Tuesday nights from 7 to 8 p.m. on WRBL.com. It live streams there. It's also available after that time in the video center there. Apple, Apple, Spotify, and iHeart or where you can get this in podcast form. On social media, you can get me. Bill, you will be impressed with this. Okay, on social media, Twitter, I am at Chuck Williams. There's not a zero. There's nothing in it. I'll join Twitter in 2008, and I need a really famous, a really famous Chuck Williams to show up, and I will sell that Twitter handle in a heartbeat. Uh, <laughs> and then Facebook, Chuck Williams WRBL, and Instagram, Chuck Williams 0999. Our guests have been Bill and Connie Neville. Thank you, guys. Hope you come back next week for another episode of the Chuck Williams Show.